We're very honored to be with you here this weekend, uh, not only for the service, but talking for the entire weekend about um, 21st century Jewish-Christian relations, some of the remarkable developments in our day uh, with regard to the relationship between Judaism and Christianity. So as Howard said last night, uh, I gave the overview uh, beginning from sort of the, the parting of the ways, the time at which uh, Judaism and Christianity part ways and become separate traditions. Uh, and we talked about some of the amazing things that happened in the 20th century that have sort of opened the door for a new relationship between Judaism and Christianity. So, uh, the uh, my my sermon today is is very much related to this topic, but it's a bit uh, separate from our trajectory throughout the weekend uh, because I wanted to talk about the parsha uh, this week, which is actually a double parsha, um, and so I want to weave that into our discussion and our reflections upon 21st century Jewish Christian relations. So uh, the title of my talk is Shehechianu, uh, the beauty of our time, uh, and I want to reflect on. Uh, again, the remarkable times in which we live, particularly with regard to this new relationship between Judaism and Christianity. Uh, and all, almost all of the time when I teach about uh, Jewish-Christian relations in our day, uh, I begin with the Shehechianu prayer, uh, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. And it's a prayer that's said at special occasions. Um, so for example, the first time uh, a Jew or anyone really visits Israel, or even in Israel, the first time we eat a fruit for that season, right? The first time a fruit becomes ripe in that season. Uh, we say the Shehechianu to, uh, to sort of mark this moment. It's literally a prayer that thanks God for keeping us alive long enough to experience this moment. And I think that when we're talking about uh, Jewish-Christian relations in our day, it's quite appropriate uh, to recite the Shehechianu because it's an amazing era in which we live. So I want to begin uh, by reciting this prayer. You're welcome to recite it with me. Uh, we'll recite it in Hebrew first and then in English. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam shehechianu v'kiyamanu v'higianu lezman hazeh. Blessed are you, Lord our God, creator of the universe, who has sustained us, protected us, and brought us to this time. And again, I hope as the weekend goes on, uh, we will increasingly be able to say this prayer with regard to the era in which we live, which as we saw last night, is a very different era uh, than Jews and Christians were living in 50 or 500 years ago. Uh, it's, it's an amazing uh, unfolding before our eyes that we're seeing in terms of a new relationship, and as this entire series is called, a healing of the schism. Uh, so one of the, um, one of the, we're, we're seeing, um, different manifestations of this healing all over the place, cropping up, not just in academic circles, uh, not just in our communities, uh, but in sort of unlikely places like Time Magazine. Uh, so this is an issue of Time Magazine from 2008, uh, that was dedicated to 10 ideas that are changing the world. Time Magazine touted these ideas, 10 future revolutions. And, and of course, the definition of a revolution is you can't ever go back to the way that it was before. And so Time Magazine, which is, of course, a completely secular magazine, uh, was talking about things like the Green Revolution, right? Uh, our increased awareness of the environment and the fact that we all bring canvas bags to the grocery store now. Uh, it was talking about things like globalization, uh, the fact that if your Dell computer has problems and you call the 
uh, the helpline, the person who picks up the phone is oftentimes in India, right? That's a new, uh, that's a future revolution. Uh, Time Magazine talked about things like socialized healthcare, uh, which is the direction that America is increasingly headed in. And so, so you get you get the point. It was talking about trends in American society that are changing uh, the way that are the the, the, the are changing our lives, um, quite frankly. And number ten, future revolution was the re-Judaizing of Jesus. Uh, and I couldn't believe it, right? This is Time Magazine. We're talking about globalization. We're talking about social, socialized healthcare. And this was uh, the final future revolution that Time Magazine was picking up on. So that's pretty amazing, right? It's not just uh, in our congregations and in Fuller Seminary and these kinds of places that we're seeing this. Uh, society at large is being affected by this. So I can't remember if you actually have uh, this short article in your packet. Uh, if you don't, I'm happy to, to send it to you. Again, I'll give you my email address uh, and you're and you're welcome to email me with any follow-up questions. Uh, I, again, I don't uh, remember if you actually have this, but we're going to read it together. It's a very short uh, article uh, that was included in this um, issue of Time Magazine. So I'm just going to read it out loud for us to understand uh, from Time Magazine's perspective what is going on. And of course, this is what we're going much more in depth with this weekend. Uh, so this is what the artis- article says. Recently, a popular blogger, let's call him Rabbi Ben, zinged the scholarship of a man we shall call Rabbi Rob. Rabbi Ben claimed that Rabbi Rob did not understand the difference between Judaism prior to the two Jewish wars in the first and second centuries AD and later Mishnaic and Talmudic Judaism. He helpfully provided a syllabus. Actually, neither man is a rabbi. Ben Witherington is a Methodist New Testament scholar and Rob Bell a rising Michigan megapastor. Yet each regards sources like the Mishnah and Rabbi Akiva as vital to understanding history's best-known Jew, Jesus. This is seismic. For centuries, the discipline of Christian Hebraics consisted primarily of Christians cherry-picking Jewish texts to support the traditionally assumed contradiction between the Jews whose alleged dry legalism contributed to their fumbling their ancient tribal covenant with God, and Jesus, who personally embodied God's new covenant of love. So again, that's the traditional dichotomy that we see. Jews who had become dry and legalistic, Jesus who brings a new covenant of love, this kind of juxtaposition between the two. But today, seminaries across the Christian spectrum teach, as Vanderbilt University New Testament scholar Amy Jill Levine says, that if you get the Jewish context wrong, you will certainly get Jesus wrong. And we talked last night about Amy Jill Levine, uh, who's one of this growing body of Jewish New Testament scholars, uh, has written a number of important books and edited the Jewish Annotated New Testament, which is a remarkable publication that came out a couple years ago. The article continues, the shift came in stages. First, a brute acceptance that Jesus was born a Jew and did Jewish things. Then, admission that he and his interpreter, Paul, saw themselves as Jews even while founding what became another faith. And today, recognition of what the Reverend Bruce Chilton, author of Rabbi Jesus, calls Jesus' passionate dedication to Jewish ideas of his day on everything from ritual purity to the ideal of the kingdom of God, ideas he rewove but did not abandon. That's, that's, again, charting the progression of this new stage that we see. 
What does this mean practically? At times, the resulting adjustment seems simple. For example, Bell thinks he knows the mysterious words Jesus wrote on the dust while defending the adulteress. He that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone, etc. By Bell's calculation, that showdown occurred at the same time as religious Jews' yearly reading of the prophet Jeremiah's warning that those who turn from God will be written in the dust because they have forsaken him. Thus, Jesus wrote the crowd's names to warn that their lack of compassion alienated their and his God. A trickier revision for readers involves Paul's letter to the Romans, forever a key Christian text on sin and Christ's salvific grace. Yet this reading necessitates skipping over what seems like extraneous material in chapters 9 through 11, which are about the Jews. We talked about this last night. And we'll talk more today about how Pauline interpretation has changed dramatically throughout the last 50 years. In- increasingly, says Jason Biassi, an editor at the Christian Century, scholars now read Romans through those chapters, through chapters 9 through 11, as a musing by a lifelong Jew on how God can fulfill his biblical covenant with Israel, even if it does not accept his son. Biassi, the theologian, agrees but as a Methodist pastor, he frets that Romans is no, longer a, is no longer really about Gentile Christians. How do you preach it? Right, A bit of a crisis for the church. If all of a sudden the book of Romans is being read through chapters 9 through 11, Paul's musing about God's covenant with Israel, uh, it becomes trickier to preach than when it was read as uh, through the lens of chapter 3 particularly. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Messiah comes and restores our relationship. The article wraps up, that is not a frivolous query. Ideally, the reassessment should increase both Jewish Christian amity and gospel clarity, things that won't happen if regular Christians feel that in rediscovering Jesus the Jew, they have lost Christ. Yet Bell finds this particular genie so logically powerful that he has no wish to rebottle it. Once in, he says, you're in deep, you're hooked, because you can't ever read it the same way again. So again, that's Time Magazine picking up on this trend, this changing environment that we're talking about this weekend and reflecting upon uh, Jewish New Testament scholars like Amy Jill Levine, uh, pastors like Rob Bell, who are all being affected and having to kind of think through these changes that we are talking about. Uh, And one of the questions that gets raised uh, is a question of what's called biblical hermeneutics. So hermeneutics is uh, simply a a fancy theological word that means interpretation. So the Time Magazine article is, is sort of begging the question of how are we going to change the lens through which we read the Bible on account of these changes that we're seeing in the relationship between Judaism and Christianity. Uh, That's the challenge that Rob Bell and these other pastors are facing. If we start to read Paul's letter to the Romans as centered upon Paul's um, musing on God's covenant with Israel— how does that change the way that we preach it? How does that understand? How does that change our understanding of Scripture? And so I want to talk a little bit about that, and I'll bring it back around to our passage and our parasha for today, and the way in which I think a renewed hermeneutic, uh, if you will, a Messianic Jewish hermeneutic, helps us to understand passages like the one that we're reading today. Before we get there, uh, just kind of a funny um, anecdote on biblical hermeneutics. Everybody has a lens through which they read scripture. Even if we don't think we do, 
I promise you, we do. So just an interesting um, aside on that. I don't know how many of you have seen or read this book, The Year of Living Biblically. Anybody? Okay. I, it's, it's a really fun uh, and in some ways profound book uh, written by a secular Jew named A.J. Jacobs uh, who claims that he is trying to obey the entire Bible without picking and choosing, uh, which becomes an interesting exercise, right? It, it, I think uh, it, it, it mirrors back, especially to the Jewish community, and the Christian community, the way in which we all read the Bible through an interpretive tradition, right? Nobody just picks it up and seeks to live it exactly how it says, but that's precisely what he does in this book. Again, uh, he has profound reflection throughout, but it's also very funny. So here's a picture uh, of him before and after. Of course, uh, the the Bible commands you not to trim the corners of your beard, so he did that. It's it's a really, um, again, funny but powerful reflection upon what it would look like to actually live the Bible uh, completely literally. So I just want to read briefly, and then we'll move on to our our parasha, uh, an excerpt from this book uh, where he's actually reflecting on his practice of uh, one of the commandments that's actually in our parasha this week, uh, Leviticus 20, 27, which says, they shall be stoned with stones, their blood shall be upon them. So he's trying to live this uh, live the Bible literally, so he has to take that very seriously. So again, it's just a short reflection, uh, and again, this is how this is how he organizes the book. He reflects on different commandments that the Bible issues in his uh, attempt to live them literally. So this is day 64, uh, and he's reflecting on this commandment that they shall be stoned with stones. He says, it's been more than a month since my mixed fiber adventure. Again, another literal commandment which is a great story in the book that we're not going to read. Time for me to tackle the second item on my list of most perplexing laws, capital punishment. The Hebrew scriptures prescribe a tremendous amount of capital punishment. Think Saudi Arabia, multiply by Texas, and then triple that. It wasn't just for murder. You could also be executed for adultery, blasphemy, breaking the Sabbath, perjury, incest, bestiality, and witchcraft, among others. A rebellious son could be sentenced to death as could a gluttonous or a drunkardly son. The most commonly mentioned punishment method in the Hebrew Bible is stoning. So I figure at the very least I should try to stone, but how? I can't tell you how many people have suggested I get adulterers and blasphemers stoned in the cannabis sense, which is an interesting idea. But I haven't smoked pot since I was at Brown University and I wrote a paper for my anthropology class on the hidden symbolism of bong hits. Brown was the type of college where this paper actually earned a B plus. (laughs) Instead, I figured my loophole would be this. The Bible doesn't specify the size of the stones, so pebbles. A few days ago, I gathered a handful of small white pebbles from Central Park, which I stuffed in my back pants pocket. Now all I needed were some victims. I decided to start with Sabbath breakers. That's easy enough to find in this workaholic city. I noticed a pot-bellied guy at the Avis down our block who had worked on both Saturday and Sunday. So no matter what, he's a Sabbath breaker. (laughs) Here's the thing though, even with pebbles, it is surprisingly hard to stone people. My plan had been to walk nonchalantly past him and chuck the pebbles at the small of his back. But after a couple of failed passes, I realized it was a bad idea. A chucked pebble, no matter how small, does not go unnoticed. My revised plan, I would pretend to be clumsy and drop the pebble on his shoe. So I did. And in this way, I stoned. 
but it was probably the most polite stoning in history. I said, I'm sorry, and then leaned down to pick up the pebble. And he leaned down at the same time, and we almost butted heads, and then he apologized, and then I apologized again. Highly unsatisfying. Today, I get another chance. I'm resting in a small public park on the Upper West Side, the kind where you see retirees eating tuna sandwiches on benches. Hey, you're dressed queer. I look over. The speaker is an elderly man, mid-70s, I'd guess. He is tall and thin and is wearing those caps that cabbies wore in movies from the 40s. You're dressed queer, he snarls. Why do you dress so queer? I have on my usual fringes and, for good measure, have worn some sandals and am carrying a naughty maple walking stick I'd bought on the internet for $25. I'm trying to live by the rules of the Bible, the Ten Commandments, stoning, adulterers. You're stoning adulterers? Yeah, I'm stoning adulterers. Well, I'm an adulterer. You're currently an adulterer? Yeah, tonight, tomorrow, yesterday, two weeks from now. Are you going to stone me? Well, if I could, yes, that'd be great. I'll punch you in the face. I'll send you to the cemetery. He's serious. This isn't a cutesy, grumpy old man. This is an angry old man. This is a man with seven decades of hostility behind him. I fish my pebbles out from my back pocket. I wouldn't stone you with big stones, I say. Just these little guys. I open my palm to show him the pebbles. He lunges at me, grabbing one out of my hand, then chucking it at my face. It whizzes by my cheek. I am stunned for a second. I hadn't expected this elderly man to make the first move. But now there is nothing stopping me from retaliating, an eye for an eye. I take one of the remaining pebbles and whip it at his chest. It bounces off. I'll punch you right in the kisser, he says. Well, you really shouldn't commit adultery, I say. We stare at each other. My heart is racing. Yes, he's a septuagenarian. Yes, he has just threatened me using corny honeymooners dialogue. But you could tell this man has a strong dark side. Our glaring contest lasts 10 seconds. Then he walks away, brushing by me as he, li- as he leaves. When I was a kid, I saw an episode of All in the Family in which Meathead, Rob Reiner's wussy peacenik character, socked some guy in the jaw. Meathead was very upset about this. But he wasn't upset that he committed violence. He was upset because it felt so good to commit violence. I can relate. Even though mine was a stoning light, barely fulfilling the letter of the law, I can't deny. It felt good to chuck a rock at this nasty old man. It felt primal. It felt like I was getting vengeance on him. This guy wasn't just an adulterer. He was a bully. I wanted him to feel the pain he'd inflicted on others, even if that pain was a tap on his chest. And it goes on. I just want to read you, and again, I want us to get a sense of what he's trying to do in the book. And of course, he's very funny uh, in his reflections on it. Uh, but he makes a point, right? Here's an adulterer sitting in Central Park, uh, and, it, and, and he's trying to, to sort of live the letter of the law in that way. And I think, uh, if nothing else, this book gives us a great reminder that we all read Scripture through a particular hermeneutical lens, a particular interpretive tradition. Uh, And so what I want us to uh, increasingly meditate on, not just today, not just this weekend, but as we live our lives and as we attend this congregation and as we go about our own meditation upon the scriptures, is a messianic Jewish hermeneutical lens. Just as the Time Magazine article kind of begs the question of how is our understanding of the scriptures going to be affected by this new season uh, in the relationship between Judaism and Christianity, I think we as Messianic Jews have a a very um, 
interesting vantage point on that question. Uh, so here's a quote from Mark Kinzer, who says that according to a Messianic Jewish hermeneutical lens, how we understand the text, every theological topic must be considered in connection with Israel and in connection with Yeshua. And Israel and Yeshua must always be considered in relation to one another. So that, in short, is one version of a Messianic Jewish interpretive lens. We always consider Israel in the light of Yeshua. We always consider Yeshua in the light of Israel. And we consider all theological topics, every passage we reflect upon, in the light of these two central pillars of our faith, the people of Israel and our Messiah Yeshua. So with that... Uh, introduction, uh, I want to now turn to our passage. We have a double parasha this week, Ahare Kiddoshim or Ahare Mot Kiddoshim, uh, which is Leviticus 16.1 through 20.27. Again, now you all know what 20.27 is. It's about stoning, uh, which at least one American has tried to take somewhat seriously. Uh, and I want to focus particularly on chapter 19. Uh, so if you have a Bible in front of you, um, you can go ahead and turn to chapter 19. That's where we'll be focusing uh, for the remainder of our time today, uh, at least in, in this, this particular session. Uh, and I want to focus on three particular points uh, that I want to draw out of chapter 19. Uh, first of all, Israel's calling and vocation is to be the holy people of God. That's what it means to be Israel, is to be called by God to live a certain level of holiness, and we'll have to unpack what that means. Uh, the second point is that Torah is the guide to living out this calling faithfully. God hasn't just said, be holy, and left that as sort of some vague prescription. He's told his people what it looks like to be holy, and that is through obeying the precepts of the Torah. As Messianic Jews, we interpret Torah through the lens of Yeshua, through the lens of our Messiah, which doesn't mean that we say, well, Torah is kind of the old and Messiah brought something new. It means we have to struggle and wrestle with how these two things fit together. And as we said last night, we really don't have much of a model of what this looked like. From, from, from very early on in the development of the Christian tradition, uh, the, the fourth century at the latest, these two traditions part ways. And reflection on the person of Messiah has nothing to do with reflection on Torah. As we talked about last night, these are mutually exclusive over the past 1,700 years. So this is part of our legacy and part of our challenge as Messianic Jews to begin to think these things together again. Uh, so the first uh, part of Leviticus chapter 19 uh, is the command to be holy as I am holy. Uh, and so I want to break this passage down. Uh, I want to break down chapter 19. There's essentially three sections that we see. Uh, this declaration that the Lord is holy with an um, emphasis on the paired prescription for God's people to be holy, which we'll talk again about what that means. Uh, and then we get this whole section on loving your neighbor as yourself uh, with all kinds of details on what that looks like to love your neighbor as yourself, uh, I'll, get, I'll, I'll, I'll say now it's very concrete practices. Again, it's not something uh, that's just a vague notion. Uh, Judaism is concrete. It's based on a set of practices that show us what it means to love our neighbor. Uh, and then finally, uh, we get uh, towards the end of the passage, uh, this commission to keep my statutes. Uh, and so I want to I argue uh, that what it means 
uh, to be holy as the Lord is holy has everything to do with loving our neighbor as ourself, and it has everything to do with keeping God's statutes. So again, uh, being holy is not just some uh, like ephemeral uh, floating around idea. It's very concrete in Judaism, and, and I think it's very concrete as we interpret Judaism through the lens of Messiah. So let's talk a bit about what holiness means uh, according to uh, the scriptures, and particularly in this case, the Jewish tradition. Uh, this is Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who is the former chief rabbi of Great Britain. Um, he is a remarkable scholar and Jewish thinker. I highly recommend uh, pretty much any of his books. Uh, my favorite is a book called To Heal a Fractured World, which is Jonathan Sachs reflecting on the ethics of responsibility, what it means to be a responsible human being uh, and in obeying our calling uh, to live holy lives. Uh, so Jonathan Sachs says, the holy is that segment of time and space that God has reserved for his presence. Again, note, it's tangible. It's, t it's in time and space. Holiness is not as it sometimes gets described, this otherworldly concept. Holiness is our calling to live a certain way now in our lives here. Uh, so he goes on to say, Jewish thought is counter-philosophical. It insists that truths are embodied precisely in particular times and places. There are holy times, the seventh day, the seventh month, the seventh year, and the end of the seven septennial cycles, the Jubilee. There are holy people, the children of Israel as a whole, within them the Leviim, and within them the Kohanim. And there is holy space, eventually Israel, within that Jerusalem, within that the temple, in the desert, there was the Mishkan and the Holy and the Holy of and the Holy of Holies. So again, you see that God has designated places in time, like the Sabbath, and places in space, like the temple, for His presence to dwell. That's what holiness means in the Jewish tradition. Uh, and as He says, as Jonathan Sachs says, Jewish thought is counter-philosophical. What does He mean by that? Well, let's talk a minute about Plato one of uh, the great philosophers of uh, Western civilization. Um, Plato has bequeathed to Western civilization what's called platonic dualism. And this is precisely what Jonathan Sachs is saying is not a Jewish spirituality. So according to platonic dualism, let's read a little bit about it. Uh, during his 80 years, Plato developed a coherent worldview that has directly or indirectly influenced all subsequent thought about ethical behavior, government, human psychology, and the nature of both physical and spiritual reality. Plato's philosophy is dualistic. It posits the coexistence of two separate worlds, one, the familiar physical environment of matter and sense impressions, and the other, an invisible realm of perfect eternal ideas. Even if you've never heard the term platonic dualism, my guess is that the description of this is sounding familiar. Uh, the Christian tradition has by and large appropriated platonic dualism uh, to itself, where there's a lower material world and there's a higher spiritual world. That's uh, for many of us, in the background of our spirituality, even if we're not aware of it. And this is what Judaism is counteracting, according to Jonathan Sachs. So according to Plato, in this philosophy, our bodies belong to the material world and are chained to the physical processes of change, decay, and death. 
Our souls, however, originate in the unseen spirit world and after death return to it for reward or punishment. That's taken from a philosophy textbook written by Stephen Harris. According to Plato, his again, Plato lived before Yeshua. He lived, uh, as you can see on this slide, from 427 BC to 348 BC. Uh, and when Plato, in his uh, treatise called Phaedrus, talks about the fall, Plato talks about how our souls fell into bodies. He has this whole analogy of a charioteer, uh, which is the natural union of a team of winged horses and their charioteer. That's his, uh, his description of how it was before we had bodies. For Plato, our physical material existence is part of the problem. It's what happened in the fall. We got trapped in these bodies. That is a very, very non-Jewish perspective on the physical world. The physical world, as we saw Jonathan Sachs say, is where God dwells. So we have to sort of unlearn Platonic dualism if we want to understand a biblical notion of holiness. We have to understand that we live holy lives here and now, and we have no other way to do that except for through our bodies. And yes, as Paul reflects on extensively in the New Testament, our bodies do sin. They drag us down. They tempt us. But the problem is not the bodies themselves. The problem is when they're not being used properly. And what the Torah teaches us to do is to use our bodies properly, to use them in the way that God's intended them to be used. So we just talked a bit about Platonic dualism, which, as I said, has deeply influenced the Christian tradition, particularly in the West. Uh, and that's because uh, Plato lived during the time of the Greek Empire. If we look at this map, we see how extensive the reign of the Greek Empire was, uh, which spread significantly under the reign of Alexander the Great. Uh, and, and Alexander the Great uh, uh, began a process of what's called Hellenization. He made the entire empire uh, kind of rotate around Greek ideas and Greek philosophy. This is the geographical setting of the New Testament. And so we see, the New Testament is actually interesting. I'm, I'm not going to talk about this right now, but uh, it's an interesting uh, document in that we see both strong Hebraic strands, but we also see the Hellenistic influence. We see the Greek influence upon the New Testament, which is why Paul sometimes sounds like a dualist. And uh, again, someone who believes in this idea of Platonic dualism, which is something that, again, we have to wrestle with. So the legacy of dualism is this right? That there's a lower physical realm, a higher spiritual realm, and that the goal of spirituality is as much as possible to transcend this lower fallen physical world and attain to a purely spiritual existence. Again, even if you've never heard the term platonic dualism, uh, my sense is that this sounds familiar to you. Many, many churches that I've been to at the very least um, buy into this, right? This is, this is the same uh, line of argumentation that gives us the image of heaven as a disembodied spirit world, right? It's where our spirits kind of float around free of these bodies. Uh, and I would challenge you that that is not the portrait of new creation that the scriptures give us. So we're challenged to think about the role of our bodies in our spirituality. Um, so this is the legacy of dualism, uh, and again, just another quote from a Jewish scholar showing how rabbinic anthropology, a Jewish understanding of what it means to be a human, uh, is quite different from this Greek 
dualistic philosophy. So uh, he says, rabbinic anthropology differs in this respect from the Hellenistic and later Christian anthropology. The distinction between spirit and matter is not known in rabbinic literature. There isn't this kind of dualistic structure in rabbinic literature. Consequently, the distinction between soul and body may be seen as a soft rather than a hard distinction. The rabbinic sources contain much talk of soul and body as well as a recognition of their different qualities. No fundamental metaphysical opposition exists, however, between these two aspects. There's, it's not as though our soul and our body are warring against one another in Judaism. That's not a Jewish framework. That's a Greek framework that finds its way into a Christian framework. Um, there may be an existential confrontation, but metaphysically soul and body from form a whole rather than a polarity. The soul is the vitalizing agent whose proper place is in the body, not out of it. That's a remarkable difference that he's talking about. Essentially what he's reflecting on is the question, what does it mean to be human? That's, that's the study of anthropology, right? So, so let's ask this question, what does it mean to be human? The classic Christian answer, and I'm taking this uh, from Daniel Boyarin, who we mentioned last night, who's a Jewish uh, thinker who's writing about kind of this revised uh, perspective on the New Testament. He's reminding us of the Jewishness of the New Testament. He, he, he wrote a fascinating book called Borderlines uh, on the partition of Judeo-Christianity. Uh, and so he says, and this is a little bit uh, oversimplified, but it makes a powerful point. The classic Christian answer to the question, what does it mean to be human, is that human beings are embodied souls, okay? The classic Jewish answer to what it means to be human is that we are animated bodies. And animated in this sense does not mean like Mickey Mouse. Uh, it means ensouled, because in Greek, the word anima means soul. So let's just ponder for just a minute on these two definitions, an embodied soul versus an animated or ensouled body. You might think, well, they're the same. We have a body and we have a soul, but they're not quite the same, right? If we look at each of these definitions, each one has an adjective and a noun, right? Uh, as we all know, a noun is a person, place, or thing, and an adjective modifies or describes that. So according to the Christian tradition, classically, what are we fundamentally as human beings? Souls. We are primarily, fundamentally a soul. That is what it means to be human. And we are the kind of soul that has a body. Plato would say at one point before the fall, we were disembodied souls. Much of the Christian tradition says that the end goal, that heaven goes back to a, to a, to a place of being disembodied souls. There's at least the option of being a soul without a body. What are we fundamentally according to Jewish tradition? Bodies. We are fundamentally bodies, according to Jewish tradition. That's, that's a remarkable difference. It means it wasn't some mistake. It wasn't the result of some catastrophe that we ended up with bodies. This is how God created us. Read the Genesis creation narrative, right? God intended and blessed a physical world and a physical creation and our physical bodies. That wasn't a mistake as Christianity sometimes slips into thinking that it was. And we are the kind of bodies that have souls. 
So we could, for example, debate about whether or not your dog has a soul, okay? That'd be an interesting question. Uh, but it, it raises the possibility that there, are, that there are perhaps bodies without souls, right? Maybe your dog doesn't have a soul. But we are the kind of bodies that do have souls. So you see the way in which these two definitions, which at the beginning look very similar, are actually quite different. Judaism has never, in the same way that Christianity has, struggled so much against physical existence. Judaism says it is through our bodies that we know and worship and obey God. Christianity doesn't have such an easy relationship with the body. So we see, uh, coming back to a Messianic Jewish hermeneutic, how do we understand these concepts through a Messianic Jewish lens where we are trying to bend these two broken traditions back toward one another, right? We're trying to hold on to both of them, and we're trying to say that the split and the schism between them is in some sense artificial. So if we look at the Lord's Prayer, the way that Yeshua teaches us to pray— He says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, a very tangible need, and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So if you remember that that, that diagram of platonic dualism, where the goal is to transcend the physical world and attain as much as possible to a purely spiritual existence, I think what Yeshua is modeling is actually the exact opposite. He's modeling and he's teaching us to embody what it looks like to make God's kingdom a reality here and now, right? The arrows go the other way. It's all about anchoring spirituality, anchoring the divine in our world, not escaping from our world and pretending as though that's how we actually attain to holiness. So it's the exact opposite paradigm than platonic dualism. Uh, So let's come back to our passage now that we've uh, kind of dissected these different paradigms. Um, Love your neighbor as yourself is right there in the the middle of Leviticus chapter 19. Um, This Yeshua is not the first or the only to make this the center of the Torah. Hillel, who's a great first century Jewish sage, says that the entire that this is the entire Torah and that the rest is merely commentary. Love your fellow as yourself. Of course, we know Yeshua uh, teaches a similar idea when he is asked about the greatest commandment. And he says, not surprisingly, that the greatest commandment is that you shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And that the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So again, uh, it's important to see that Yeshua isn't, uh, uh, Yeshua said many novel kind of amazing things. I was reflecting on that during our Brit Hadashah reading this morning. Uh, Yeshua had a way with phrasing concepts such that they kind of make us catch the breath in our, in, in our throat. But he wasn't the first or the only Jewish sage to put this commandment at the center of the Torah. And so, as we know, Yeshua commands us to love in many places throughout the New Testament. He says in the book of John, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you, love, if you have love for one another. Um, and my husband and I, I remember we had a conversation about this uh, early on, uh, either when we were dating or when we were just married, Um, about how can we be commanded to love? 
So much of our uh, sort of contemporary society treats love as an emotion. How can you be commanded to feel a certain way? It doesn't make sense, right? But that's not what the Bible means by love. In the Bible, love is a set of concrete actions and practices. It's the way we live our lives. It's the way we make decisions. It's not how we feel. That's sort of a nice byproduct, right, of, of love, of doing loving acts. So it, it makes it make much more sense that we're commanded to love when we think about love from a Jewish perspective, when we think about love through the lens of Leviticus 19. It's a set of concrete, embodied practices. That's what love is. And for anyone who's married, it becomes very quick, it, it becomes apparent very quickly that marriage is about serving one another. You don't always feel these kind of warm fuzzies towards your spouse, right? But the covenant that we make in marriage is that we will love each other through our actions, through serving one another. That's what love means in the scriptures. That's what love means in Leviticus 19. That's what it means to love our neighbor. Um, I'm, I'm going to skip over this because we're, we're getting a bit long on time. Uh, an interesting passage uh, to reflect on through this lens is the passage on the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, uh, which, is a, which is kind of a, um, it's a bit haunting, if you will. This is where uh, Yeshua talks about sort of in the end, the separation of the, sheeps and, the sheep and the goats, and it's based upon who fed the hungry, who visited the prisoner, who, who watched after the orphan, right? These are the things that in the end our lives are evaluated upon. And I always used to, um, again, be, be sort of haunted by this passage because it sounds a lot like works righteousness, doesn't it? It sounds a lot like in the end what matters is how we treated other people. And it's scary, right? It's scary to think of our, our eternal destinies, at least if you're myself uh, and, you, and, you, and you are introspective about your own flaws and sin. It's terrifying to think about this. But what I realized is that Matthew 25 is a beautiful reflection upon what it means to love, what it means, this concrete embodied kind of love that the Bible talks about through and through, that Yeshua models for us with his entire being. Uh, so again, this is the... Uh, the conclusion of that passage. And what we see in the passage is that love of neighbor equals love of God. How do we love God? Through loving our neighbor, right? Uh, Yeshua in this parable tells us uh, that whatever you did to the least of these, we did to God, right? There's this direct parallel. Again, a concrete notion of loving, not some disembodied fuzzy feeling. That's what, that's what the Torah is rooted in, is concrete actions. Uh, and finally, the end of our, of our passage, the last third of Leviticus 19, talks about keeping my statutes. Uh, and so I want to talk about uh, an idea, uh, again, that is being rethought in our day, which is the idea of the law, which is, by the way, a bad translation of Torah. Torah in Hebrew means teaching, it gets translated into Greek with the word namas, which means law. And ever since then, law has, the word Torah has all of this baggage in the Western world. Legalism is almost a dirty word in the Christian church, right? God forbid we be legalistic like the Pharisees. That's a misunderstanding of the law as a burden. 
the imagery that the Jewish tradition gives us is the Torah as the ketubah between the people of Israel and God. What's a ketubah? It's a marriage certificate, right? The Torah is that which binds God to his people and vice versa. So I'll just read you a quote uh, from John Levinson, uh, who's a really wonderful Jewish uh, Tanakh or Old Testament scholar, who says, covenant love is mutual. It distinguishes a relationship of reciprocity. On God's side lies an obligation to fulfill the oath he swore to the patriarchs, to grant their descendants the promised land to be their God. Israel, for her part, is to realize her love in the form of observance of her master's stipulations, the mitzvot, for they are the words of the language of love. How beautiful is that? The mitzvot are the words of the language of love. The fit medium in which to respond to the passionate advances of the divine suzerain. It is not a question of law or love, but law conceived in love, love expressed in law. The two are a unity. To speak of one apart from the other is to produce a parity of the religion of Israel. The love of God moves Israel to embrace the norms of Sinai. How much does this fly in the face of what much of the Christian world thinks of as the law? Again, all over the place, we're sort of stumbling upon these concepts that require us to rethink our interpretation of the Bible and our understanding of the religious tradition to which we belong. There is no longer any room for a dichotomy between law and love. What John Levinson is saying, and I believe what Yeshua is saying, is that those are one and the same. We show our love by obeying God's Torah, which, which the center of that is loving our neighbor. Again, these things fit together. The, the, the structure is not random. Of course, Yeshua upholds this, which, which uh, again, much of the history of understanding of who our Messiah is seems to f- conveniently forget the fact that Yeshua says in Matthew 5, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, a haunting challenge for us, but it doesn't leave room for the fact that these Pharisees are this legalistic bunch that God forbid we act like them. That's not what Yeshua says. Yeshua holds up the Pharisees and says, your righteousness needs to exceed theirs. So in closing, uh, there's, there's sort of a lot to, to, to chew on in what we're, we're talking about this morning, uh, but the points that I want us to take away is, uh, number one, the structure of our passage Leviticus 19 has kind of these three chunks in it. The Lord is holy and we are therefore commanded to be holy. What on earth does that mean? It looks a lot like loving your neighbor as yourself, which if you go back and read Leviticus 19, is all kinds of concrete embodied practices. Again, loving your neighbor is a lot like loving your spouse. You don't always feel warm fuzzies for your neighbor. And of course, in Judaism and Christianity, there's a whole debate about who is your neighbor, Right? This is what Yeshua is reflecting upon in the story of the, uh, the Samaritan, uh, the great Samaritan. 
So loving your neighbor as yourself is, is what it looks like to be holy and keeping God's statutes, remembering that our love is expressed through our obedience to the way of life that God has called us to live. That's what it means to be holy as our God is holy. Leviticus 19 doesn't just lay this out there and then move on. It lays out there the command to be holy and then it tells us what that looks like. So again, the, 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 the main points uh, that I want us to, to be thinking about is the idea that Israel's calling and vocation is to be the holy people of God, as it says in the beginning of Leviticus 19 and throughout the Torah in particular. The Torah, the mitzvot, the commandments, this pathway of righteousness is the guide to living out this calling faithfully. And as Messianic Jews, we interpret Torah through the lens of Yeshua, which again, none of these are, are points that we have kind of neatly sealed up in the last 45 minutes. Uh, rather, there are these big, expansive concepts that beckon us forward, that beckon us to take a step in the direction of figuring out what it means to live this life that God has called us to live, and to interpret the Torah that God's people, Israel, have been striving to follow for centuries in light of our Messiah, Yeshua. And again, as Mark Kenzer said at the beginning, to think about Israel and Torah and Yeshua in a continuous way, not in a, in a uh, juxtaposed way. Jesus didn't come and do away with Torah and God's covenant with Israel. He fulfilled it. What does that mean? That's our job. That's our calling to reflect upon that. So I want to just end uh, with a story uh, about this family. Um, and, and again, it's, it's, it's interesting because um, this isn't a Jewish family. Uh, this family doesn't have much to do with Judaism. Uh, this is a uh, Russell and Michaela Grant. Uh, Michaela has been a dear friend of mine for the last decade. Uh, interestingly enough, she is not Jewish uh, and her husband is not Jewish, uh, but Michaela did uh, her, her bachelor's degree at Gordon College, uh, where it, some of you may have heard the name Marvin Wilson, uh, who's a wonderful scholar kind of perpetuating this healing of the schism between Judaism and Christianity. Uh, and so Marvin Wilson teaches a, a class at a Christian college on modern Jewish culture that Michaela took when she was in college, and it changed her entire perspective on her Christian spirituality. And interestingly, when I became a believer in Yeshua, I spent about three or four years in the church. I had no idea how to reconcile being Jewish with believing in Messiah. And so I dumped my Judaism, and I, and I, and I completely immersed myself in the church world. And Michaela, my Christian friend, thought it was so significant that I was Jewish that she started calling me on Jewish holidays that I didn't even know what they were because I was raised in, in not such an observant Jewish home and kind of helped me to unearth and awaken my own Jewishness. I have much of my own current um, identification as a Messianic Jew to my friend Michaela. Um, but that's not what I want to talk about. Michaela uh, was, a, uh, was a, a woman like, like, like many of us who, who longed to be a wife and a mother. That was her dream. That was, her, uh, that was what she felt like God had called her to be uh, since the time she was old enough to dream about her life. Uh, she got married uh, when she was about 27. And after three years of trying to have children, she and her husband could not have children. Uh, which was utterly devastating for a woman who for her entire life just dreamed of being a mom. 
But what's so remarkable is that they, they, they struggled through that season, uh, but they didn't let that prevent them from having children. Uh, what they did is they entered uh, the very turbulent world of foster care and foster care leading to adoption. Uh, and so these uh, two children, uh, the two older children, uh, are their two adopted children that they adopted through the foster care system. Uh, and the younger child that's sitting in Russell's lap uh, is currently, they are fostering this child and they are in a long process, not knowing whether they'll be able to adopt him or not. Uh, if they do, if they are able to adopt him, his name will be Oliver, drawing from the word olive and the metaphor of the olive tree, that he will be grafted into their beautiful family that God has given them. So uh, t I told Michaela, she, she lives in Lake Tahoe where my husband and I uh, have been for the last month spending time with my family and I got to spend some time with Michaela and I got to sort of uh, see her family and, and be reminded of the way in which her and her husband's decisions embody the kind of love the kind of self-emptying, others-including love that we are called to demonstrate. And so I said, I want to share about you this weekend when I'm speaking in Ohio. And I asked her to write out kind of a version, a short version of the saga behind her adoption of these sort of two and a half children. They're not sure that they're actually going to be able to adopt the third. Uh, and she wrote me a three-page email going through all of the details and the emotional highs and lows of their story. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Uh, and, 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 and again, uh, she was kind of honored to hear that I would be sharing her story with you all. Uh, basically, uh, their first uh, daughter, who's now named Eileen, they, they renamed the children upon adoption. Uh, it was a three-year battle. Uh, not sure whether they would get her or not. Her biological mom had mental health issues. There was no dad on record. It looked like it would be heading straight to adoption. Uh, but then three men were, were genetically tested to find out who was her father. And the one who was found to be her father wanted custody of her. So then my friends who are fostering this daughter um, aren't sure whether this biological dad who has a drug addict brother who happens to be living with him at the time is going to get this daughter who's become their child. And so she goes on about the struggle with, uh, with Eileen and, and, and the joy that came three years after they began fostering her when they were finally able to adopt her. Um, Ezra, their son, uh, had an equally troubling story. He was born addicted to opiates, um, and they had no idea what kind of impact that would have on him. Thank God he is a healthy, thriving little boy who doesn't seem to have been impacted by that. Um, I, his, um, anyway, the, the story goes on and on and on uh, and, and, and ends with, uh, again, little Oliver, who they have not yet adopted, whose father tried to kill his mother. His mother miraculously survived. His father's now in jail and they're in this whole legal battle about whether mom, biological mom, is going to be suited, she with her own substance abuse issues, to raise this child. Why do I tell you this story? Because when I was in Lake Tahoe last week and I was spending time with this family, I was blown away by the love that they, that, that resides at the center of their lives and their decisions. What an amazing story of redemption that this couple, this woman, my friend, who had dreamed of being a wife and a mother for her entire life, who could not get pregnant, has now opened her arms and her family to these two and a half, possibly three children 
that's the kind of love that we're called to live, right? That is the kind of love that Yeshua embodies for us. That's the love that resides at the center of Torah. So I want you to kind of keep this family in mind and in prayer if they come to your mind. And I want to, I want to use them as kind of a, a flesh and blood example of what love, what embodied, concrete, practical love, not warm, fuzzy, ethereal love looks like. So in closing, let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you have called us and commissioned us to be your people. We thank you that you have not left us without a guide in terms of what it means to obey and follow and serve you. We thank you for the gift of your Torah, which is, uh, as we said in the liturgy this morning, it's, it's, a, it's a pleasant pathway. It's a pathway of peace. It's the pathway to righteousness. And we thank you for our righteous Messiah who fully embodied a life of Torah, who fully embodied a life of obedience to you, obedience even unto death, but who you raised from the grave, who you vindicated from the forces that overcame him. And we thank you that you have given us this very, very high calling to be your people and to be followers of Yeshua. God, we ask that we would each in our lives, whether uh, whatever our struggles, whatever our situation may be, some of us may be in a similar um, involvement in the foster care system. Uh, God, we just pray that you would be with us, that you would be our guide, and that we would strive to figure out how to be your people, how to be the kind of people who you will one day say, good and faithful servant, that we will be a people that you are not ashamed to call your own. God, may this be our life's challenge to follow you, to follow your Torah, and to, and to reflect the image of your Messiah. We thank you for this time here and this time this weekend, and we ask that, uh, that our time together would be a healthy challenge to each of us, and that we would go out and that we would be advocates of a new understanding, of a new lens through which to understand Scripture, that we would say, no, 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 Yeshua did not abolish Torah. Let me explain, let, let me tell you how those two things fit together. May we wrestle with these concepts and may we live them out concretely in our lives. And we pray all these things in Yeshua's name.